The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. All right, Psalm 131, that's where we're going to be today. I'll pray for us here in a second. Um, Three short verses, okay? And so if you've ever uh, wanted to be able to brag to somebody and tell tell them you've memorized a chapter of Scripture, this would be the one to go after, okay? Um, but I, I think um, we'll have trouble unpacking th- these three verses because there's some depth here um, that, that the Lord is speaking through his word, through his servant David. Um, and so my, my prayer is that our hearts are open uh, to hear from God um, and that the, the spirit would quicken us uh, to the things of God. So uh, as I pray over us, you pray in your own heart for the Lord to move. So Father, we, um, what a privilege to come together as, as a redeemed people. And, and even as was mentioned and prayed earlier, to, to think thoughts that redeemed brothers and sisters all over this world are gathering to worship you, to, to declare to you uh, their gratitude and, and their reverence and, and, and to devote their hearts and their lives and their all to you because we've recognized that you've given all for us through Jesus. And so there is no reason to not have hope because we have redemption through your son. And, and even now you've, you've left um, Jesus to be at the right hand of the Father, but the Holy Spirit is with us and you've given us your word. And so we collect here and we put ourselves in our hearts, our souls, our minds under your word, O oh God. And we ask Holy Spirit that you would move and have your way that you would convict where conviction is needed, that you would run off lies and distortions where the enemy's condemnation has set in, that you would build up areas that are weak and that you would change us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. And so, Father, we are privileged to gather here and, and we're grateful that you would do so amongst, uh, that, that you would do that for us. And so move amongst us, O oh God. Uh, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. All right, Psalm 131. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna read through these three verses, um, give a bit of an intro, and then we're gonna go back and just unpack verse by verse. It says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So I've been counseling. I've had a professional counseling degree or practice since 2005. I did that for 10 years, um, and I pastored on the side that whole time. If you've heard me talk, you've heard me talk about kind of my background. And so my background's in the counseling world, and and I've tried to bring that counseling world, biblical counseling, into the life of the church, which is in essence called soul care. And I've used this chapter of Scripture countless times in my counseling practice. But I've used it even more in my own life and in my own heart. There's something very appealing about the flow of these verses. But the way that I've used it in counseling, I've got a homework assignment connected to this. And so so I'm going to give it to you real quick. And you're not going to get a week to think about it. You're going to get about five seconds. So good luck with that. So here's, here's what I ask. I'll read this in a session with somebody. 
And then I'll tell them, okay, here, I want you to read this between now and the next time we meet several times a day. And every time you read it, I want you to just kind of write down the observations that jump out to you each and every time. Sometimes it'll be the same observation every time you read it, but the Spirit's cool like that and that it'll draw other truths out as you read verses you've read maybe hundreds of times. And then we'll go over that the next time we meet. So then the question I ask him will be this, what verse jumped out to you the most? So you look at these three verses. What verse jumps out to you the most? And, and you, you'll get different answers, okay? But by and large, people come with verse two. Verse two, why is that? Let, let me read it again. But I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. I want some of that. Anybody's life a bit chaotic? Am I the only one? Maybe I need counseling. Yeah, life is full of chaos. So I, I left Round Rock early this morning because I wanted to park it here in New Braunfels and not deal with the ridiculousness of downtown Austin, even on a Sunday, right? And so I got here, hit it Panera early, and just opened my Bible, got in the Word, and, and I was trying to fix my mind and my heart on the Lord all the way here. And you know what I was thinking about? Meetings I've got next week, bills I've got to pay, things coming up in August at other churches I'm working with, and anxiety began to flood through my heart to the point where I landed at Panera and I did no work with the Lord to get ready for this morning. I mean, life is full of toil and chaos. And I've got four kids, 12 and under. So it's varying degrees of chaos at our house. We had a movie night last night and it's always supposed to start at seven and somehow it never starts till nine right and then it's 11 o'clock by the time we get done life is full of chaos and I think we read verse 2 and we're like I want me some of that calmed quieted content and yet if we don't understand the full context of what David is saying here we'll miss what he's encouraging us in these deep truths so there's a couple things we have to understand about Psalm 131 what it isn't to understand what it is does that make sense because David is speaking from a position. He's saying, I am not, but to say you're not something, you have to know what it was at one point. So for a, a drug addict to say, I'm not a drug addict, they have to have known what it meant to be an addict, right? David is speaking from a position of having been these very things that he's now going to say, I am not. And so our challenge is like, I can't read this the way David is saying it. I'm like, well, I blew verse 1. Yeah, verse 2 is for sure not happening. Not sure about verse 3. So I'm 0 for 3 at this point. So, so how do I read this to understand what David is saying as he's inspired by the Spirit? So we have to come, out, come at this from the counter, okay? He's saying what he is or what he isn't. We have to see it on its opposite, the other side of the coin. So here's what Psalm 131 is not. Psalm 131 is not a meditative state or philosophical enlightenment. So here's where I, I mess with the people in Austin. I preached this several weeks ago in Austin. And, and so what I told the Austinites there was like, this isn't a yoga class. They love yoga in Austin. And I'm not against yoga necessarily, but when you got yoga mats at all the places you go, like to hold your yoga mat, that's weird to me. That's just bizarre to me, okay? So Psalm 131 is not a yoga class. It's not philosophical enlightenment. 
It's not incense burning and you stealing your soul and just listening and thinking of pleasant thoughts. That's not what this psalm is. This psalm is not a guide to a carefree and easygoing personality. Anybody ever told you to just chill out? My wife did last night. She said, you just need to chill. Psalm 131 isn't a guide to a better personality. And if you just touched your wife or your husband right now, you probably, you got a fight coming later, I bet. (laughs) Psalm 131 is not a guide to a chill personality. It's not what it is. Um, Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorites. If you've not read Charles Spurgeon, uh, at 21 years old, he had the biggest church in the world in England. (laughs) And yet I would contend his, his suffering that he went through throughout that period, I would put it next to anyone's. His suffering and the sorrow he walked through, yet his faithfulness to the Lord. So when a guy like that talks and stayed faithful to the end, you kind of want to listen to that guy or that gal. Here's what he said about this psalm. He said it's one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. And only the elderly understand that comment. Because life has a way of beating things out of you, does it not? Right? Like, I I all the time think back to when I was a young dummy in high school and think how much I thought I knew back then. And yet I still will call my parents and say, thank you, you were so patient and gracious. And it takes me having kids to see that now. And I'm only 40. I'm only 40. What am I going to be saying at 60? Life has a way of beating it out of you. And yet these three verses could take a lifetime to learn. He also said this, he described this psalm as a song of the Israelites returning from Babylon with humble hearts having been weaned from their idols. So if you look at Old Testament history, there's several several different periods where the Israelites were exiled into captivity. You ever heard of the Assyrians? That was one of them. The Babylonians? That was another one. And if you want to go and add the first one, the Egyptians are the one on the front end before they entered the promised land. So the Israelites historically were very familiar with captivity. And what I love about Psalm 131 is it's a psalm of the ascent. The the psalms of the ascents were used to get their hearts right as they were going to worship. Kind of like we've done this morning as Pastor Blair read through a psalm and prayed, read, prayed, read, prayed, read, prayed to get our hearts right before a holy God. That's what these psalms were for. So, so they were in captivity. Why? Because they were obedient children of God? No, because they turned away from the living God and he handed them over to the Babylonians. Babylonians. That's what the captivity entailed. And in that period of captivity, they were broken down and broken down and broken down. But guess who they came back to? The lover of their soul and their redeemer, God, Yahweh. And so they would say these words as a remembrance of flee from idolatry, he is better. (laughs) It's the subdued heart that's just been taken to the mat by God's violent grace to restore our souls. If your contentness is not in him, yet you're his child, he will take you down to bring you back to him. Amen? And it's never his judgment. It's his grace to do so. It's his mercy to do so. And and even as we sang these songs this morning, like I, I can know that I have not loved the Lord my God with my whole heart. I haven't. I want to. So what a moment to say, no, you're enough. You're enough. 
This is why we gather. This is why we spur each other on in the gospel to remember these things, to be resubdued under his mighty hand, to re, be recaptured by his affections. And that's the context to this. See, see why it's not yoga? <laughs> see why it's not philosophical enlightenment? They got their teeth kicked in in Babylonia and they came back, oh my goodness, forsake those idols. <laughs> They were grateful again. They were content again in him, in him alone. So let's get into it. Verse one. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. And David starts in the best place possible. Uh, the heart, think of that word heart, um, liken it to what Jesus says in Matthew 22, the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then you could, in essence, see that as with everything. You're all. It's the control center of who you are, okay? And the heart's not a physical heart. Uh, the heart most likely is connected somehow to the brain, to the emotions, to the will, to the affections. It's the only part of you that's eternal. And it's from the breath of God himself. As your physical body wastes, your heart, your soul remains. It's the control center. David starts in the right place. Oh, Lord, my control center, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So let's take two things here. Again, we're going to look at it from the counter because he's saying I'm not these things. So we have to understand what does it mean to be these things? What's the counter of what he's saying he isn't? It's two forms of pride that he talks about. The first one is that phrase, lift it up. That phrase, lift it up, it means haughty, okay? And not haughty like H-O-T-T-Y, okay? Or H-O-T-T-I-E, however you want to spell that. Like, like full of yourself, full of self. And the byproduct of being haughty, full of self, guess what? Is undervaluing people. So instead of seeing people as image bearers, when I'm full of myself and haughty, I devalue people and use them as a means to an end. That's to not treat them as an image bearer. That's to treat them as something that is a means to my end, my kingdom, if you will. So that's the first form of pride. The second is found in the phrase, raised too high. And, and what he's talking about is the pride of presumption. The pride of presumption, uh, a way you could say that is it's a bit above your pay grade. I mean, I, I, I see this all the time with my kids. I got a son going into sixth grade. He's my oldest. And, and it's good that he wants independence. We're leaving the homeschool world to put him into a charter school. Those are new waters for us. He's so excited. He's, if there's a social kid we have, he's the one. And he's, he's, he's excited. He's flexing his muscles, so to speak, of autonomy he's growing more independent he he's taken over the mowing for me at the house this summer he's he's doing things he's earning his way a bit and there's good in that but he always wants to grab a line that's above his pay grade you know what I'm talking about that's that's what this is like in the grand scheme of the cosmos okay we're a speck right did you wake yourself up this morning? Did you talk to your lungs last night and tell them to work? Did you speak to your heart and tell it to beat? 
We are a speck in the cosmos. Like in a simple brain aneurysm would drop you dead like that before you even know it, knew it. <laughs> like we don't bring that much to the table when it comes to ability. We're very limited if you think about it. It doesn't take much to knock us down. I got some, some sinus stuff going on right now with some allergies and you'd think I had pneumonia, right? I mean, we, it doesn't take much to knock us down. And before a holy God, I mean, if you've read like characters of scripture who've had encounters with God, Moses saw his back and dude was jacked up for a long time. They had to put a veil over him. Like people confused angels for God and fell on their face. Like we can't handle his presence. <laughs> like he is so mighty, he is so holy. The vastness of the universe that he created with the spoken word and, and we're a blip on that radar. And this pride of presumption has us put ourselves next to him as if we could make the universe turn. We would never say that, but our heart believes it. It's above our pay grade. It's above our pay grade. And so here's, if you've ever heard me talk about Genesis 1 and 2, this is a point that I've had to hammer over and over because of how clearly Genesis 1 and 2 talks about it. God did not create mankind in their sinless form as autonomous beings. You won't find that theme in Genesis 1 and 2. He created them to need counsel, direction. He gave them specific instruction. In other words, they're not that different than my kids are with me. They needy. They need me. They don't pay the bills. There's very little they can do. Like they would eat Cheerios all the time if the cooking was up to them. There's very little they can do without their parents because of how young they are. Think of that as us created by God to be very needy on him. And it's beautiful and it's right. This pride says you don't need anyone. You've got this. And it couldn't be further from the DNA that's been wired in you by your loving creator. Autonomy is not a good thing autonomy this pride of presumption and so David again he's saying I'm not lifted up I'm not raised to I you he's saying that having been one who was and so I I can't get past verse one I'm like ah lift it up raised too high I've got these aspirations like I've got these desires these different dreams and if I'm not careful I'll just go and build my own little kingdom apart from God and then I'll ask him to bless it when I need him to sprinkle some blessings over it. And then I wonder why years later I feel so far apart from him because I left on my plans and included him in where he might fit in. Isn't this how we treat God? Rather than his kingdom come, his will be done, it's my kingdom come, my will be done. God, why don't you bless it? And then I'll shake my fist at him when it doesn't turn out the way I want. This is what we do. This is what we do. And so David, is he's painfully aware of the heart's tendency. He's painfully aware of, of being lifted up, of being raised too high. He's seen the people taken into captivity. He's seen the heart's tendency in his own life to do such. And then I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. You see this beautiful humility that comes with contentment. Like, how quick are you to critique? How quick are you to look at what's missing and not consider and count what is? Me and my wife this morning were having that conversation. 
because I confessed to her when, we, when I got to Panera. I just said, man, I'm, I'm, my mind is all over the place. Like, I, I'm not right. Like, I feel like I didn't do any prep this week. I'm not right, and, and, and I'm worried about this, and I'm worried about this, and I'm worried about this. And then she prayed over me, and, and one of the things that she prayed was, Lord, forgive us for always seeing what we don't have and not blessing you and thanking you for what you've given. Right? The humble, content heart, it longs for nothing because it's found its need in the great shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Why? Because he's the great shepherd. <laughs> Leads me to green fields, streams, still waters, restores my soul, <laughs> guides me, comforts me. Like that picture of shepherd in Psalm 23, it's the most intimate metaphor that's given to God for and towards us in the whole of scripture. Because of the holistic provision, protection, care, healing, blessing that comes from that picture and you see it right here. I do not occupy myself with things too great, too marvelous for me, a content, subdued heart and soul. So that means the opposite. So think of this for a second. We're about to shift into verse two, but you have to think of this. If I have pride in my heart, if I am lifted up, if I'm raised too high, if I occupy myself with things too great, by default, what that means is my soul is stirred up. Let me read Isaiah 57. Write this down. You can look at it later. Isaiah 57, verses 20 through 21. But the wicked are like the tossing sea. That, that, that phrase, wicked, it encompasses the self-centered, the self apart from God. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked, or you could say for the proud. So chaos in and of itself isn't sinful, okay? But where I take that chaos inside of my own heart has the potential to be very sinful. And, and then we wonder why our life is so full of noise because in no way do we allow the noise to check our heart so that we become subdued again, so that we quit looking above our pay grade, so that our hearts aren't lifted up and we stay in this entitled place. But now we're gonna see the quiet soul. Verse two, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. I, I love this picture, okay? This picture, um, break it down into two parts. When he says, I've calmed and quieted, that word quieted, it'd be better understood um, like to level something, okay? So, I mean, they're building all up and down 35. And anytime some big um, piece of property uh, is, is being ready to build maybe an apartment complex on or a, a section of housing, do they just go and start doing bricks and mortar on the ground? Is that what they do? No, they get massive excavators and they begin to level the field. That's what that word quieted means. Not very passive word, is it? See why it's not yoga? I have calmed and quieted. In essence, what the psalmist has learned to do is to preach truth to his soul. 
So think of it this way. His nagging soul is saying, feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me. And it's nearly like outer body. The psalmist grabs onto the statutes of God and tells his soul to be quiet. To be quiet. So let me, let me give you my morning. Okay, and I think the, the Lord's gracious to take Satan's temptations that were sent to derail me this morning and actually prepare me for what he wanted to do. Like nagging soul, nagging soul, like ambitions and fears and anxieties all clashing at the same time. And then just the word of truth, the word of the gospel getting, beginning to flood my heart as I was able to steal my heart under prayer with my wife and open the word and then begin to speak truth to those anxieties. Then begin to speak truth to all of those ambitions and all of those fears. And guess what happened? Shh, the soul was quieted. And not easily. It took me a good 35, 40 minutes to get to that place of subdued. It's very active. This calm and quieted soul, it's definitive, not passive at all. It's think of like a bulldozer leveling the heart and subduing it under the grace of the Lord. So here's a beautiful gospel truth. To quiet the soul, it's dying to the desires that Christ already died for. It's telling self-exalting desires, you don't own me. It's telling fear-based desires you can't take me down it's preaching the gospel to the depths of your being this process is active it's not subconscious it's not meditative it's to grab on to the truths of God because all of my words mean nothing unless they line up with what God has already said and he uses his spirit to quicken hearts based off his word my wisdom's never changed anyone it probably got people in trouble God's wisdom changes the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. <laughs> God's wisdom takes people from a pit of darkness and sets their foot upon the rock into the marvelous light, amen? His truth is a beacon for my wandering heart. <laughs> His truth penetrates the deepest crevices of my being and draws me into a better place where hope and grace and life can abound. And that's what the psalmist is doing. So can we see it? It's not meditative. It's not higher conscious. This is not philosophical enlightenment. It's not a chill personality. Here's what it is. What we're seeing, we're seeing a picture of how Jesus ultimately lived his life. Think of the garden. Remember the garden where he's facing death and he's pleading with the Lord, let this cup pass for me. Go back and read that one this week. Was Jesus just full on embracing, skipping to the cross like he had no fears and sorrows crowding his heart? No, he's like, let this cup pass from me. But what? Not my will, your will. You see the pay grade? He's not going above what he actually had the authority to do. He has the authority as being part of the Godhead to destroy all the people who are coming after him. Every one of them. And he checks his authority at the door and submits himself to the will of the Father. He is not above his pay grade. Isn't that amazing? And then in the, in the face of death, where he's sweating drops of blood, great turmoil, he preaches truth to his soul and he goes on his way into the teeth of death. Jesus walked this out. 
We're simply following suit what he's already done for us. He's not calling us into something that he hasn't had to walk through himself. As a man, flesh and blood man, Jesus walked this out. But there's a danger here, and this is where I, I need to shift for a second. I think we read verse two and we're like, yeah, I want some of that. I wanna be calmed and content and subdued and, and, and totally able to just still my soul. Nobody likes a noisy soul. Does anybody just out and out and outright like chaos? I mean, you don't have to answer because it's gonna marginalize you for sure. And you may have a mental disorder and that's okay, there's help for you. Like love you, bless you, let's get you some help. But like by and large, people don't like chaos, right? By and large, people don't like chaos. In fact, when people are thrown into heavily chaotic situations, I've counseled many a soldier who's come back from war who had to learn to adjust to chaos they weren't created to have a frame of reference for. God didn't create them to see the things they've seen, and they've seen them now. And now they're coming back to a, a world that's not that, and they don't know how to function. They were thrust into chaos, learned to sort of cope, came back to a normal life, don't know how to cope. Like, we don't like chaos, we don't have the framework for it, and, and yet we have this ability to hit the mute button on chaos and make it seem as if our soul is subdued, and it all be apart from God subduing our soul. So here's, here's I'll give you an example. Um, counseled a couple years ago, and by God's grace, they're in a much better place now. Um, like, if you looked at their family, they had, I think they had like six kids, um, kind of like all-star mom, all-star dad, you know, eat everything organic, you know, like homeschool. Like, I mean, and I'm not anti-homeschool. We homeschool, okay? So if you're a homeschooler, I'm not making fun of you right now, okay? But they did everything better than you, I, I can assure you. And in fact, like she just walks through her garden and things grow. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> just, yeah, just that type of family. And, and yet they had to get into soul care. And, and we begin to walk with them and, and it's kind of like a, a beautiful car and then you open the engine and the hood of the car and there's no engine in the car. That's the situation. Looked really beautiful, but then you start to get into the guts of it. You're like, whoa, we're missing an engine. <laughs> we're, we're, we're missing like a transmission too. Gosh, like are there axles on that thing? Oh gosh, we got a lot of work to do. And, and here's, here's where their world begun to unravel. She had all of these things in, in, in her mind, all of these ambitions, all of these desires for her family to look a certain way. And, and he, the husband, was very much in line with those things, but he wasn't gonna drive them forward. It wasn't gonna get done if it had been on him. It was only gonna get done by her. He was just the vocal presence in the background. The older kids began to rebel as they entered their teenager years against her whole frame, uh, her whole worldview. Everything that she had worked so hard for 12, 13 years to initiate, they started to push on every aspect of it. And guess who wasn't saying anything about it? Because he had never said anything. Husband. And it created this unbelievable fallout. I would say that was already there. You just couldn't see it because they didn't have a reason to argue yet. Because they were on the same page. This massive fallout between the two of them. <laughs> so a couple of your ambitions fall away couple of your worldviews fall away, how do you react? Things don't quite go the way that you had hoped or planned and, and guess what starts to come out? What was already in you? 
And, and, if, and if we can draw something in to make it quiet and it look the part, no one would ever see it until that thing that we draw in doesn't work anymore or isn't available anymore, and then the soul's still screaming just as loud as it ever has. We have this terrible ability, brother and sister, to draw in things to silence the noise because our souls hate chaos because God created us for people to be of peace. And, and so like, th this is where idolatry is such a big thing. Why do you think people become addicts? I've never counseled an abuse victim um, that didn't struggle with some type of addiction later in life. Didn't necessarily have to be a chemical addiction, but oftentimes it is. If those wounds aren't healed, it becomes a loud noise. Guess what silences it pretty quickly? Substances. Pursuits. Ambitions. We draw things in to quiet the noise. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's why God allowed the people to be exiled to Babylon, because they chose other gods. God said, okay, let's see how the Babylonians treat you. And, and oh, did they get humbled. But, but who was waiting for them in their humbling? God, their lover, their creator, their restorer, their redeemer, he was waiting for them. So one of the questions I want us to wrestle with is like we love verse two. We, we want that quietness. What do you draw in? What do you draw in to quiet the noise? Is it fantasy? You know when people are addicted to Netflix and just binge for hours and two days go by and they don't know what they did? What are they doing there? It's an acceptable addiction in our culture. What are they doing there? Shh, quieting the noise. Gotta go easy on the attic, don't we? What do you draw in to quiet the noise? Is it a relationship? Is it a pursuit? Is it some form of escapism? If you're God's, he will come after you. If you're his child, he will come after that thing and show you that he alone subdues our soul. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me and this is an important part right here I'm not going to unpack it as much as I would like to but this weaning if you've ever weaned a kid from anything or ever been a part of any type of weaning process it's a difficult process is it not I remember when my sister got weaned off sucking her thumb I, she was secretly sucking her thumb for months in her room like, and, and I mean, you would have thought there was some kind of chemical release in her thumb that was kind of giving her a buzz every time she sucked her thumb this was bizarre. Like the weaning process isn't a, hey, stop sucking your pacifier. I'm glad we had that conversation. That was easy. No, it's like, stop. How'd you get one? Where'd you sneak that from? Give me back. No, did you go buy some more pacifier? I mean, like it's, it's a consistent process. And isn't this just what God allows us through his good gospel to continue to preach truth to ourselves over and over? Like, if you don't abide in Christ, if you don't know his word, what are you gonna preach to your soul? Because I can assure you to be weaned off these things that we would use to silence our soul, it ain't gonna go easy. You've become far too dependent upon it because I know I have. And, and God shakes things up to, to, to show us that noise is still there so that we'd see the need to preach actual truth to our soul, not draw in a false refuge. That's what he's doing. So this picture of being weaned, it's an intense process. 
but now you see this child is resting and subdued. So freedom, contentment, peace, it won't come through introspection. It won't come through platitude. Only by being weaned by insubstantial ambitions and false refuges, putting oneself under the holistic care and provision of the Lord, that's the only thing that actually will wean our soul. And then he goes on in verse three. I think this is the most important verse of this whole chapter. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth forevermore. So this is where you see the reason for hope. The reason for hope. And so that phrase, O Israel, circle that phrase. It's like saying, beloved. It's like saying, my children. So one of my favorite things about the scriptures, and and, and you you can look at this, Um, there's countless phrases in scripture that God says about his children that we can't say about ourselves unless we're redeemed guess who redeems us because it's not me it's not my works it's not that I came to church today and checked that box Jesus Christ and Christ alone his blood shed redeems me and so through Jesus Christ his son God says all these amazing things about me you know what he calls me calls you son daughter redeemed (laughs) reconciled adopted we can go on and on can't we things I can't say about myself but that God says over me because of his son that's what this means (laughs) beloved my children hope in the Lord this word hope It means confident expectation and trust. So he's saying, my beloved, have confidence and trust in what you can expect from me. In other words, I'm a good and loving father and you're my children. (laughs) Tim Keller says it this way, your hope is that which you expect and are sure will satisfy your deepest desires. Again, where's your hope? Because where you place your hope and where you place your allegiance is where you find your greatest refuge. And, and listen, like there is no father like our father God. There is no caregiver like our caregiver God. There is no nurturer and healer like our nurturer and healer God. And these are the things he provides for us and says over us and provides to us through Jesus Christ, his son. If you don't get verse three, you can't do verses one and two. You know why? Because you'll put your identity somewhere else. Where you most identify yourself is how you see yourself and where you place your hope, which means if your identity is not found in who you are in Christ, you will be lifted up. Verse one, you will occupy yourself with things too great. You will not be able to calm and quiet your soul, so you'll have to draw something else in to make it be quiet. And then in in its essence, that will become your functional savior. You see it? Starts with verse three. If you're not one of his, you can't do verses one and two because you're trapped in the the brokenness of that cycle in the unredeemed context. But if you know who you are in Christ, if you know that you're one of his, you have all the hope in the world for today, for now, and forevermore. And so then when our heart is flustered by anxieties like mine was on 
35 on the way in. And, and as I begin to confess my need for the Lord to deal with me in that place, as I was prayed over by my wife, as I begin to reflect on the truths of God, guess what I began to realize and remember again that he's my caretaker. <laughs> he's my redeemer because I'm his son. Be quiet, ambition. Be still, you fear. And, and it levels things. And, and I can assure you, driving back, I'll be tempted to do it again. I'll be tempted. And, and you know what I'm most tempted to do in that moment is to turn the radio on and just silence the noise of my soul. I just create more noise because the noise of my soul doesn't get dealt with because the noise of the radio is just magnifying what's really going on in me. But if I hit that mute button and I give those cares to the Lord and I remember who I am in Him, there's great opportunity there. And this is where I think the opportunity of noise is such a gift. Um, I, don't, I don't propose, and your homework is not, let me say that again, your homework is not to go create some chaos. Don't go run some red lights and wreck into things and try to just stir up trouble. That's not what your homework is, but tr noise will find you this week. And, and oftentimes the noise is right out here and then it slowly finds its way in here. Like the opportunity of noise is to evaluate your own pride and to see, am I resting in who I am in Christ? Because if I'm not, I'm looking above my pay grade, which means because of this noise and the way that I don't like this noise, I'm gonna draw something else in to mute it, which is a false savior in essence. Do you see it? See how they work together? I bet this interaction of these three verses happens hundreds of times in a day for us. And we're by and large unaware of them till the end of the day when we're just frazzled. Or, or maybe by the end of a period where our bodies begin to crash because of adrenal fatigue, that's a real thing. You begin to shut down because your physical body can't stand the noise of life anymore. And so um, here's what I want us to do. Um, and Blair said that you guys have done a bit of this prayer through response and so I've got three prayer points for us, okay? Um, if, if, if you're new here or this is awkward for you, I totally can understand that, but, but I want us to respond to the, these three verses in prayer, and I think the best way to respond to them is together, okay? So we're gonna pair up in twos and threes. Don't, like, don't do much more than that because then not everybody will have a chance to pray. I'm gonna guide us through three points. The first two are for your little group of two or three.